Welcome to Rewide, a podcast that brings to you cutting-edge ideas on how to create a just economy and society. We'll have conversations with policymakers and activists at the forefront of efforts to transform our society. I am Duma Bubule, an economist and financial journalist. And I'm Isabel Fry, a lawyer and social justice activist. Together, we want to provide you with information and insights so that you can have meaningful debates in your spaces and communities. Today, we ask, can South Africa reimagine monetary policy in the wake of the COVID-19 economic depression and create a developmental central bank? Our guest today is Owen Wilcox, who recently published a policy brief, Macroeconomic Response to COVID-19, for the Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies Think Tank. In the brief, he writes that South Africa needs a large response, a one trillion stimulus to counter the effects of the COVID-19 crisis. He says this stimulus cannot be financed through conventional mechanisms. Instead, the government must use quantitative easing both to offset the collapse of demand and to finance government spending. Today, we will discuss these issues with Owen. Owen, welcome to Rewired. We'd like to just ask, um, can you just give us a brief profile of yourself, where you're from, and what you've done in the past? Sure. Uh, I'm an economist. I did a master's degree at the University of Cape Town. After that, I went and worked at TIPS, uh, Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies, as a trade economist. Then I worked at the National Treasury for 11 years. I worked, I did, I worked in three parts of the Treasury I started off in economic policy. I used to do the forecast for the budget, the economic forecast. Then I did representing South Africa at the G20 negotiations. And then I finally worked in public finance, which was a budget-oriented role, looking at the budgets of departments like trade and industry, agriculture, land reform. Um, You worked in forecasting. Um, Yes. Have you any idea why the forecasts have been so wrong in the last decade? Because the Treasury does admit that Every year for the past nine years, our forecasts have been wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe that the Treasury hasn't acknowledged how much of a role demand has played in the economy and um, lack of demand. Really, that you know, every year what what's actually happening is the expenditure numbers were okay, but we're missing on the revenue numbers. We're not raising as much tax as we thought we would, and so that means the, def- the deficit is larger. And I think is really just in the we haven't been aware enough of how the demand uh, demand is weaker than we think, and that's really I think the it's it's a mistake that's had, a, had implications for fiscal policy and also for forecasting. Oh, and welcome. As a non-economist, just a question. When you talk about a lower-than-expected demand, is that linked to the distribution of income in the country? Is it that few people have the ability, the disposable income, to demand in terms of the poverty levels? Well, to spend, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it does have, it is related to income inequality because generally what you see is that poorer people spend a, lot, a larger proportion of their income. Uh, and so, and and richer people can save more income, and especially they've got the, the capability to save when they're worried that something's going wrong in the economy, which we have seen that rich people save more, poor people generally don't have that option, so they have to spend more. And in terms of, yeah, that'll that'll lead to more effective demand. Since you're here, Owen, I have to ask you this question: National Treasury, um, to me, seems like it has an effective veto on all economic policies that may be 
decided through democratic means. Um, for example, we saw the president in his State of the Nation address say that he called for a fiscal stimulus of 400 billion rands in September 2018. And he said there'd be an infrastructure fund of 400 billion rands, blended finance. Treasury decided, we don't understand what you're saying, and they, there is no infrastructure fund currently. And then later on, he talked about um, top slicing a percentage of money for youth programs. Treasury didn't seem to understand that. I can guarantee you it's not going to happen. So if the president himself can be vetoed by the national treasury, what more ordinary South Africans and activists like Isabel as well? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I mean, treasury cards a purse. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, government policy is not always consulted the treasury before, before people come out and make announcements. So then you, um, treasury ends up having to fill up and and make those promises real, which is not always they're not always capable of doing. And sometimes I think politicians also make promises that aren't actually based in reality. And we we can talk now even about the stimulus that's already been promised, the five hundred billion that is not five hundred billion. Everybody knows that. Um, so it's sometimes it's the job of officials to try and make those words real. Um, yeah, but I, I think it is correct. The treasury has had a, a big impact. I would I would also just say it, it cuts both ways as well. So, yeah, if we, I think if we had a treasury that was a bit more progressive, we would have had a more progressive economy. We would also have some fantastic uh, Russian-powered nuclear plants going as well. So it, it has, it's, it's got positives and negatives. Just following on from that, as a social activist, one of the many issues that we've been trying to address over the years is the question of available resources. So in our constitution, we have socioeconomic rights, social security, health and housing, water, food, which are meant to be made progressively available according to the state's available resources. Uh, there's an international covenant which talks about the maximum available resources, the UN International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. For many of us who have a rights-based, a legal background, the idea was quite simple. We would make submissions to the state, specifically around budget issues, and advance the argument that the state was not progressively increasing access to um, their rights, people's rights, or it was actually being regressive. We thought our arguments were very sound in law, and we would put them forward as was our democratic and constitutional right. And yet we would just be told that there was no available money. Now, when we talk about things like quantitative easing and monetary policy, to what extent do you think it might be possible? You spoke about possibly if we'd had a more progressive treasury. What ways could a national treasury through monetary policy as part of macroeconomic policy increase the available resources, especially where the fiscal policy is, is lacking? I think what's happened in fiscal policy is that it hasn't been expansionary enough. So what that's meant is that growth has been much weaker than it should have been, especially over the last decade. So we have not actually generated the resources that we need for further expansion of social grants or, or um, any, uh, any sort of social spending. Uh, so there has been a limitation on the amount of revenue that we're growing, but that I think that's also partly because we haven't spent enough. Uh, just in terms of macroeconomic policy, if... If the deficit had been wider, we would have had we would have had more debt. We also would have had a lot more growth. We would have generated more tax revenue. So it was in a way it was almost a self fulfilling prophecy that uh, Treasury didn't spend it spend enough, and um, we ended up being constrained in what we could spend. Uh, at the same time, I mean there are always arguments about about the distribution of the current spending. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it, it is correct that. 
You know, government spends more on VIP protection services than it does on land reform. That is a crazy number to my mind. Uh, we, a progressive government should be really trying to drive that that issue forward. That is a you know, land reform. If it's done correctly, it is a policy that will result in poverty reduction. It's going to improve equity. It'll change this country if we get it right. But we're focused on other things. Yeah, we understand that um, the focus today is on monetary policy, but we had to ask you, having come from Treasury, a few questions about National yeah. Treasury. So at this stage, can you perhaps just give us an overview of your paper? The central bank governor, he referenced your paper in his lecture at WITS. Um, um, so it's a very important paper. It's had a very big impact on South Africa. And you talk about a $1 trillion fiscal stimulus. And I just have to background, perhaps leading from your previous question, there is this discourse in South Africa that we are broke. We can't do anything. And um, as an economist, I know that it's not technically true. So um, just give us an overview of your paper, the design principles, how you decided on the size of the one trillion, the funding sources, and finally the quantitative easing. Just very briefly, of course, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I mean, obviously, if you want to, if you want to get the full detail, you'll have to look at the, the paper itself. Uh, basically, what I, what I was trying to do is suggest what should the macroeconomic response to the COVID recession be. And uh, my conclusion, I'll put it up front, is that government's response is a good is a good start, but it is too small. And if we carry on on this path, it's going to have disastrous uh, consequences for this economy for now and also uh, for the years ahead as well. So it really is a moment now for fiscal policy. Monetary policy has done quite a lot in terms of um, reducing lending standards and that sort of thing. But uh, there, there are some limitations on monetary policy that, that mean it's not going to be as effective as, as fiscal policy in the current situation. So really what we need to do is find a way to get as many resources into government as possible. So my argument was that the, the stimulus needs to be much bigger and the current resources aren't available using, using our conventional financing, so we will need to do quantitative easing. In terms of the objective of the, the package, it's, firstly, it's got to fill that output gap. So the output gap is the gap between where current growth is, where current size of the economy is, and where it would have been without the recession. When you get into a recession, what happens is that households look at their current uh, employment uh, probability. They're, they're worried that they're going to lose their jobs. They're worried they're going to have their salaries cut. So people are going to save as much as they can. Same thing happens with companies. Companies look at their revenue. At the, current, at the moment, a lot of companies aren't get, are getting no revenue. So, so they're going to try and cut back their spending. Um, they might fire people. They, they'll default on their rent, that kind of thing. Companies and households are going to cut back on their expenditure as much as possible. Uh, and that leads to something called the paradox of thrift, which is that saving is a good thing, but not if everybody does it at the same time. So when that happens, you get a recession. That, that is almost the definition of recession. And isn't it true that we were actually in recession prior to That's COVID? another thing that we need to remember when we're talking about the size is that we're already in recession. So we have to, we can't just talk about uh, stimulus to, to get back to the pre-COVID. We've got to go. And we've, in fact, we've had, we've had a decade of very poor growth that we actually need to make up for. Yeah, so, so government is really the only party that can step in and spend uh, we, we can't rely on the households and companies to do it. It has to be done by government, and government has to their spending has to be sized to that output gap. The second um, objective is that we need to offset the future impact of this crisis. So we've got this unlovely term hysteresis, which is the impact of a shock in the future once that shock has been removed. What that means in the COVID situation is that we've got a recession from COVID. 
but it's going to have a negative impact on growth in future years, maybe even up to a decade from now. Um, it's going to reduce growth even once the recession, once the lockdowns ended. Something we've forgotten about, it's still going to have a negative impact on growth. I think you explained it very well in the paper where you said that um, there'll be permanent reduction yeah. of um, productive capacity. Yeah, so that's going to happen through through both firms and households. Again, we're looking at balance sheets. So uh, households are going to, they're not going to earn as much income. People are going to be worried about how much money they're going to have. They're going to cut back on their spending. On the firm side, companies are going to end up taking up on more debt. Or in the, the worst case scenario, a lot of companies are going to go out of business. So when the economy picks up again, uh, we're going to wait for those companies to start production again, to start hiring workers but they're not going to be there. And that's going to, it, what it means is we're not going to have that sort of level of growth that we would have had otherwise. Is there a positive solution to this? It's sounding incredibly yeah, worrying. Funny. But that's, that's really where the point of government's got to come in. And government has got to, you need a government that's going to act and, and say, okay, this is our moment, we need to come in, and, and it has to be a fiscal solution, as I was saying. You look at various funding options, and yeah. I have to ask about this one because I'm writing something about the IMF loan. And what I've found out is that, you know, the IMF is almost like a stock fell that can't help you when you're really in trouble. Because I think from the time it was started in 1944, it was undercapitalized and um, mm. it, didn't, it couldn't respond to the rebuilding of Europe after the war. And what we're seeing now is that the money that we'll get for the typical country in terms of your quota is about 1% of your GDP, when most countries are going to have 10% shock to their GDP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it probably isn't enough. And I would argue we shouldn't really even go there, to be honest. Um, so if we were going to borrow money from the IMF, uh, we could probably borrow from them about 1%, uh, which is very cheap, because if we were borrowing now, it would be about 7% for government at the same term. Um, I was incorrect in, the, in my policy brief that uh, we could actually borrow from them in rands, which is a significant change because we don't want to borrow dollars, we want to borrow rands. But there are always are conditionalities, even if in the current situation, it would be a pared down loan with fewer conditionalities. But I, I think, I don't see the point of borrowing from the IMF at 1% when we can borrow from the Saab at 0%. So I would think we should avoid this, the IMF as much as possible. To be so honest. we can borrow from the Reserve Bank? We can. We can borrow from the Reserve Bank. And we have already been doing that, in fact. So when we talk about quantitative easing, we're talking about purchases of bonds. And the Reserve Bank has already been doing that. They, they've, they've gone into the bond market and they've purchased, I think it was $25 billion, $25 billion yeah, yeah. in the last two months or three months. And uh, so I think we do need to talk just, yeah, there's quite a, quite a bit we've got to talk about in terms of QE, but there are two different purposes for it. So what the Reserve Bank has been doing already has been trying to calm down the, the bond market. So when the COVID recession started, there was a fair amount of panic in a lot of countries, actually. And a lot of central banks had to step into the bond market to start buying up bonds because the, there was no demand for their bonds at all. So, so the Reserve Bank has been doing that already, and it, and it was effective. It, uh, they've brought back some calm, measure of calm to the bond market. As the only non-economist in this room, Duma, can I ask you to explain what QE or quantitative easing is? But before we go there, I just want to have just a background, just quickly about the role of the SA Reserve Bank in the economy. There are raging debates throughout the world about central bank mandates and their policy tools. And I just want to know is that the mandate, if you listen to the Federal Reserve of the US, they're very proud of the dual mandate to create maximum employment and also price stability. And if you listen to any of the governors when they talk, whether it's Yellen and whether it's Powell, they always talk about job creation. Now, surely as South Africa, we've got a massive unemployment problem. 
surely it's time to think of a wider um, mandate for the Reserve Bank. And then the second issue is that the policy tools that we use is interest rates. There are other policy tools that a central bank can use, as we've seen from the US as well. Mm. Yeah, look, I think the mandate is, if you look back at our at the last 10 years, I, I think there's a clear case for a complete review of macroeconomic policy. How can we sit back and watch, we've had a decade of declining GDP per capita and say our macroeconomic framework is correct. It's clearly incorrect. You know, it, uh, a decade ago, we were growing at 5% pre-crisis. Obviously, there was a lot of growth going on in that, that global economy that helped us a lot. We had very high metals prices, which helped. But we've, we've basically gone from more than 5 to less than 1% uh, growth over the decade. And that, to me, is a sign of a macroeconomic failure. And so there has to be a review of the macroeconomic framework. And I think inflation targeting is obviously one of the, one of the targets of that. It should be something that, that gets reviewed. And I don't think, you know, you, you can have a radical change or you can just say, you know, we'll copy the, the biggest central bank that's out there and just have a dual mandate. Yeah, New Zealand, which started inflation targeting, we're copying New Zealand of 30 years ago. <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll go back to a dual mandate in 30 years' time, who knows. But um, yeah, I mean, you can see it right now that when the economy is in free fall and it's a dire, dire situation, the, the central bank is still worried about inflation, which to me is... It's such an irrelevant second-order concern. We should be worried about jobs, employment, uh, avoiding hunger. You know that that's what really what government should be worrying about. Why is there this opacity? Why are the the people who decide on the policies not able to see alternatives? And and why is this orthodoxy the kind of supreme principle at the cost of of growth and well-being? I want to add to that. Everywhere I go, just like my comment, people ask me, twenty-six years. These policies have not delivered. What will it take for them to realize that these policies have to be changed? I think there's a view in the higher echelons of government where these very conservative people are that, that their, their policies are correct and the reasons why we haven't got growth lie elsewhere. So there was always a debate when I was in Treasury uh, you know, about what was the cause of, of lack of growth and the general view would be that it, the the microeconomic reforms are not happening. So it is uh, there is some validity to that, you know. We probably would have much better growth if we definitely would have much better growth if we had a uh, a mining sector that was was growing and that um you know the mining investors felt felt confident to invest in in the mining sector if transport was sorted out that stuff would help. Yeah, it's quite a I think treasury also needs to look look at itself and and say you know, has macroeconomic policy been correct? And I don't know how you get to the view that you've succeeded when you've had a, a decade of declining GDP per capita. So as Jim is saying, I mean, we condemn to repeat the same mistakes unless there's a, a disruption. Now, just uh, let's move on a bit to the main point of your paper is that we should consider quantitative easing. Now, that is a horrible word that the public can't understand. But I took a little bit of a definition from Positive Money, which is a UK NGO. It says quantitative easing is usually used to stimulate an economy when conventional forms of monetary policy, interest rates, are no longer effective. For example, when interest rates are at or near zero. QE is where central banks create new money out of nothing to buy financial assets, government and corporate debt in the form of bonds from financial entities such as pension funds, insurance companies and investment banks. In the media, QE is presented as a process whereby central banks print money and lend this to the banks 
so that they can increase their lending in the economy. But in reality, no actual physical cash is ever printed. And most people, let alone banks, don't ever see the money created via QE. What actually happens is that central banks create new digital money, central bank reserves, which are then used to buy government and corporate debts. So just a brief background. There have been three basic episodes of QE over the past um, two decades. Japan had a small QE in 2001, which was about $300 billion. Um, today, Japan is the world, has the world's highest debt-to-GDP ratio of about 240%. The Bank of Japan owns 44% of this debt. And nobody ever thinks it's a huge problem for Japan to have 240% of GDP. Uh, people have thought it, and yes, they've, they been, have, yeah, they've yeah. been wrong. And <laughs> then the second, the second um, episode was in the global financial crisis, and obviously the U.S. Fed led um, all the central banks in the world. They had QE worth $3.6 trillion between August 2007 and early 2015. The Bank of England implemented £445 billion pounds of QE, new money, magic money, and um, the, the U European Central Bank also implemented QE. And since September, the third episode was in the current recession, yeah, the COVID recession. But the U.S. had started implementing QE in 2019 again, and they've implemented $3.4 trillion since then. But since March, they've created 11 lending facilities worth $2.3 trillion. So they've provided loans to throughout society, including local and state governments. And finally, the difference this time is that, as you said in your paper and the, the governor himself acknowledged, about 12 emerging markets have started implementing QE. So can you perhaps explain it for ordinary people what QE is based on that? It is creating money. The central bank will create money out of nothing. But it's not printing. The, the, the mint, South African mint printing presses are not running. No, no. It's just an accounting you know, transaction. They just credit one side. or I don't know. They, they just make the money out of nowhere and they give it to a bank. And uh, they'll, Yeah, so it's electronic money. Um, so it is, it is money creation. Though. It, it comes out of nothing and it costs nothing to do. That's, that's the, the important thing. So in, in the South African situation, what would happen, the... Government has a, a primary bond at auction every Monday, so they would sell, I think it's about 12 billion rand worth of bonds, and they would sell those bonds to to a bank, and then the bank, if we were doing QE, the bank would turn around and then sell that immediately to the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank would pay them with that money that they've created. So just a, a, so a bond is a debt that government issues that other people buy. And just um, you say that there's, this, there's, a, there's a whole discussion around the primary and the secondary market. Maybe you can explain that. But the way I understand it, um, just in layman's terms, is that the central bank could buy up all the houses in my area. Those are existing houses and the prices of the house would go up, and then the cost of the, the yield would go down of the houses if they're buying them. Yeah. yeah, so that is you're buying existing houses as opposed to buying new houses. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. Because you say in the paper there's no difference. I would think there is a difference, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the primary, primary market is just when you're buying it straight from government. So that's, that's the primary auction that the Reserve Bank holds every Monday. The secondary market is when you buy that debt from somebody else. It could be from a bank or whoever, whoever bought it from the bank in the first place. So all I meant was that there are limits on how much money the central bank can buy in the primary market. I think Chris Malikani talked about that quite a lot. Those limits are not actually very are binding. I mean, it's, I think it was like 300 billion rand or something. That's a lot of money. 
Um, but I, I just mean in terms of the, the economic impact, I think it would be quite similar whether it's primary market or secondary market. The point is the Reserve Bank is putting that money into the, mar- into the market. It's creating money for banks to lend out and it's lowering interest rates. There's four reasons that he has come up, the governor, as to why we can't implement QE. He said it will bankrupt the Reserve Bank. We will end up like ESCOM. So in layman's terms, what he was saying is that um, we would create this magic money then we would have to withdraw it through sterilization to, to, and then that would have a cost. So if you did your 500 billion and um, he's, he's the number that was used and there would be a cost on that. What, what I said in the policy brief was that one way, if you're worried about inflation, which the Reserve Bank is, so I think we need, if we want to talk to them, we've got to engage them in their own language. So we've got to talk about inflation. Uh, I said w- what we could do is pay, um, pay interest on any amount of money that the banks deposit with the bank uh, with the central bank above what they need to so central banks have to keep a certain amount of money with the central bank at all times that's that's their their policy reserve in case there's a run on the banks correct yeah and so uh, it, it's yeah so they, they keep some money with the reserve bank at all times so what i was suggesting though is start paying interest on any amount above that that they keep with the bank with the central bank uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve, the American Central Bank, did this in the crisis in 2008 and it resulted in trillions of dollars being kept in the central bank so that it didn't go into the economy and start uh, circulating and um, leading to hyperinflation. That, that was their concern. So I suggested that they could do that, they could pay interest. So, But will it bankrupt the country, as you said? No, interest? well, the thing is, it's, they'll be paying interest in rands. They create the rands. I don't see how they could ever become insolvent uh, if they're paying out in rands that they can create. They can create the money for the, to buy the debt. They can create the money to pay the interest. It doesn't make sense to me. I wish I could do that on a monthly basis. I really do. <laughs> the second issue he says is that QE can only be implemented when a country has interest rates and inflation at or near zero. You obviously debunked this in your paper, and the, the central bank governor has also acknowledged that. So I think he's shifting the goalposts. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it, it just has been implemented all over. Developing economies are doing it. I see Indonesia has said that they're going to do unlimited QE. I mean, that's a really bold statement. And they have, their inflation rate is about 3%. Their policy rate is at 4%. It's higher than ours. So they are, they're basically saying that they're going to buy as much, as much government debt as they can or as they need to. Um, and they're in a probably a worse situation than we are in terms of their monetary policy. It's well, at least a higher higher policy rate. So there's definitely that that argument that they they don't they, we cannot do it is clearly not. Can I ask a question there? Because it's something which li- linked to inflation an argument that I've heard. So if, for instance, you're going to have unlimited QE, that means that people who currently hold debt as creditors are going to have the value of their rand denominated debt, well, loan. Uh, devalued if they're more rands in circulation. No, it would go the other way around because there'd be greater demand for that debt. The central bank will be buying that debt and so the price of that debt will go up, the yield will come down. That's another thing that the central bank said on Thursday was that... Reducing interest rates to zero will be inflationary. Yeah, but uh, they also said if, if, if they start buying in the market, then suddenly everyone will want to get rid of their bonds and they'll dump them. I mean, that's clearly not what's happened already. They've already been doing QE on a small scale, much too small a scale, but they've already been doing it and the opposite has happened. That when they've gone into those markets, they've stabilized the markets and the interest rates have come down, which means that price of that debt has actually gone up. The final reason, he said, um, is that we do not have the exorbitant privilege of having the world's reserve currency. 
or an internationally accepted currency. I'm not sure how, what that means, but anyway. I, I don't think it matters. We print our own currency. That's the thing. It's, it's a rand that you know, is, has value in South Africa. We're not, we're not dependent on QE in South Africa. wouldn't be dependent on international investors at all. Um, so, yeah. And, and look, we, we can see other countries are doing this already. India is doing it. Uh, I had the whole list in my, in my brief, which I've forgotten. And I didn't have Indonesia on, in that list because they've recently come to the party. But Israel, Iceland, Brazil, Ecuador, Switzerland, China, whoever you want to name, they're all doing it. But Owen, when, when for the average person on the street, if you talk about printing money, magic money, uh, we think about countries such as Zimbabwe that printed an unlimited aspect and, and Weimar, Germany, where you carry wheelbarrows full of, of um, useless money. How can you have an unlimited scope of creating magic money while still keeping some kind of constraint, restraint? No, that's, a, that's a great question because I, and I, I think it gets the heart of what the Reserve Bank is worried about, actually, that QE has been at the heart of all these hyperinflation episodes. So they've always had a bank that's uh, debased its own currency, whether Zimbabwe, I think Hungary, in many, many cases, Brazil, Argentina a few times. Um, th- so it's a question of w- what are the circumstances in the economy that, that lead to hyperinflation? And, um, and I think there's, we don't have a very good uh, grasp of, of all of the particulars of it. What we can see from the current use of QE in Japan and in the developed markets is that in the situation where the economy is very weak, like we currently have, if we're projecting a 6% decline, I think we'd be lucky if we get a 6% decline in GDP, uh, you're not going to get that excess of demand that's going to lead to too many, too much money chasing too few goods. By definition. By yeah. definition. because we're Without in a, res- a basic income grant. Well, we're in a recession. Yeah. Recession means that you've got too little money chasing too many goods. That's a, that's a recession. So, so I don't see how that inflation dynamic can, can arise in this current situation. And that's the experience of those developed economies. I don't think it was really about credibility of banks or anything like that. It was just that they were in, in a deep recession and inflation couldn't arise. Oh, and there's a spectrum of QE. Not all QE is the same. So number one, you could buy you could participate in auctions where government borrows at a cost of interest. And then number two, you could what is called monetary finance where it's for free. Yeah. Monetization of debt. Yeah. Yes. yes, Yeah. Number three, the central bank could finance your development finance institutions and they could recapitalize ESCOM them. So on the spectrum, what do we have to do? Well, I think at the moment we are in a position where because the economy is so weak, we could really do whatever we need to. Um, so the Reserve Bank is saying that we're not things aren't that bad, so they're only going to participate in that the, the the short end of that spectrum where they're going to try and support markets. I think we need to go full on debt monetization, so buy up as much government debt as possible, enabling government expenditure to increase. So that's the key thing: is it's not actually about the QE; it's QE to give government money, so the government can go out and spend it. And government's the spending is key. Um, I think that's actually where you're going to get the economic impact. And it's going to be through um, you know, saving businesses, saving jobs, saving wages. And uh, yeah, if you want some sort of basic income grant, I think this is the time to do it. If we, had a, we could do a six-month grant, um, temporary, but yeah, it, it would be a good idea to establish something like that. Um, I was involved in a discussion two days ago where uh, quite an orthodox economist was saying that uh, QE cannot be used to solve the structural crises that we have in South Africa. 
Now, I didn't see that there was a problem because clearly we do need to address the underlying structural issues. QE is on top of that trying to address a COVID-related exacerbation of the impact of that crisis. So you're talking about a basic income grant as being uh, an interventionary step in order to shake up or disrupt the distribution of income in order to create underlying stimulus. Uh, is that how you no, see No, that's it? exactly it. So if you think about a response economic policy, you can think about structural change and you can think about cyclical responses. So when you've got a, a downturn, you need a cyclical response and the cyclical response is usually widen your fiscal deficit or lower your interest rates. And uh, in this case, what we're saying is that we need a third option as well, which is that QE to enable a wider fiscal deficit. The structural change stuff is correct, but actually at the moment it's a bit of a... It's, no, it's not relevant. It's not, it's, not, it's not relevant at all to the economy right now, okay? Because uh, it's not going to do any, anything. There's no structural change that's going to help us out of the COVID crisis. The only thing that's going to help you is government spending and lower interest rates uh, or QE. Um, just one question is that QE, as it was practiced in rich country, has limitations. Um, so some people argue that it, um, most QE funds remain trapped in the financial sector. It inflated prices. It benefited the rich and exacerbated inequality. As a result, um, as Isabel was saying, there have been calls in the UK under Corbyn's Labour Party for people's quantitative easing. So what I'm asking, as you've said so, can QE fund a basic income grant or a citizen's dividend yeah. The main point is that QE is a me- is a mechanism for financing greater government expenditure. It's government expenditure which is really going to lead to you know, offsetting this, the impact of this crisis, and it is a crisis. So QE is just a funding mechanism, um, but if we don't have it, we're going to have a, a, a response that's too small, and if that response, government's response to the crisis is too small, we're going we're to carry the cost of that for, for years to come, and it's going to result in poverty, it's going to result in hunger, it's going to result in firms closing or companies closing, um, and it's going to mean we're going to have weaker growth for years to come. Let's talk about the current stimulus because we're, we're, um, about 200 billion relates to the loan scheme, of which 100 billion has been committed. So and 7 billion has been taken up. So 7 far. billion has been taken up. So, th- so the, the 200 billion is not happening at the moment. So there's the 300 billion, and according to my calculation, of that 300 billion, only 71 billion is new money. So what, what, how, what are you finding in terms of um, this fiscal stimulus? Because when you, there's certain stuff that you have to minus from the 500, yeah. For sure. Anything that's already been committed is you have to take off. So that's the 130 billion that reprioritized within current baselines. That's adding nothing new to the economy. That has to get taken off. And 70 billion, if you're going to defer tax, um, tax payments, it doesn't help because you actually need to reduce tax payments. That, you know, it doesn't help. Companies, if they're going to pay now, they don't have to pay in June. They can pay in September. I don't think that's really going to help um, very much. So I think that was that's about two hundred of it. And then it's not real stimulus. It's yeah. not real stimulus. Yeah. So uh, I, I haven't I haven't looked at it in detail. I just when I looked at those first two numbers, I was already you know pretty depressed. Yes. Yeah, so 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 if I look at what you've said, the loan of two hundred billion rand, we've only seen seven billion. Now, off the other side. Um, 200 billion is not real stimulus, so we're left with 100 billion, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so government's response has been, I would say, inadequate. There, there's so much more that could be done. You know, the social grants, uh, 350 rand per household is, is completely, it's, it's just, it's way, way too little. I, I think I looked at, 
in the policy brief, I looked at the numbers for food poverty. That that is just that's not even going to breach food poverty levels. So for for one household, I think government should just be giving out grants. To be honest, small businesses are going to fail in this economy. Uh, they they can't they can't actually do business. So they need some sort of grant to get them through this period. You know, where the government just says, okay, we'll give you, I don't know, 5 or 10% of, of last year's revenue just to get you through this period. So c- can I just ask how this happens in, could happen? Yeah. Um, so if there is a, a funding of a sort of basic income cash grants, that would not go through the normal budget. That would be a ring-fenced amount, which is made available. Is that correct? No, I think it would be through the normal budget and go through Department of Social development. Mm-hmm. So I think they've they've got a mechanism, but I mean, part of the problem would be that they haven't they haven't paid to everybody. You know, they they know who their current beneficiaries are, so they would it would take them time to set up something new. Where do you think the nerve center for such decision making should lie? Because clearly, it's not anywhere right now. So I mean, you have mm-hmm. a feedback loop. You start seeing that people are spending more because they have more greater access, um, and you can then make decisions based on that. I mean, right now we seem to have a, a vacuum when it comes to urgent important decisions such as this. Um, is this a national treasury function, as Duma said at the beginning? Uh, who should be taking these bold decisions? Well, it should be a cabinet decision. That's it. Cabinet must make these decisions. I think the problem in the past has been that ministers of finance have been able to convince cabinet maybe to make bad decisions. Sometimes to make very good decisions. Okay, There's a lot of stuff that you know, that the public doesn't know about. I can tell you in the Zuma years, the Treasury fought a lot of stuff and we won a lot of battles that, that stopped bad stuff. And uh, Against your ministers of finance? No, no, the minister of finance had to go fight maybe against the president. Uh, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that happened in those days, unfortunately. And, you know, there were a lot of bad projects that we saw that, that made no sense and Treasury did block them. Um, but then also there's, you know, on the, on the negative side, you know, I think Treasury hasn't, the fiscal policy just hasn't been expansionary enough and that's been a, a problem for it for a good while. Can I just ask two questions? Yeah. Um, yeah, The first one is the issue of corruption. You know, you've seen these numbers that um, corruption costs a trillion rands. Yeah. Uh, well, um, but to me as an economist, I, I don't see that, um, yeah, because I don't know. No, I, I don't know how, they, how anyone got to that number for a start. That number's... That number's huge, and I don't, I don't see how anyone got that number. And I, I also, you know, the cost of corruption is, is spoken as, as if it has this massive impact on the economy. I don't, I'm not saying corruption is a good thing. I'm just saying that if you look at the history of economic development, the, a, lot of comp- a lot of countries that have developed quite rapidly were also extremely corrupt. Japan, South Korea were quite corrupt when they were, when they were growing rapidly. They were still maintaining growth rates of 10% of GDP a year, which is something we'd you know we'd be very happy to get, but but they were they were quite corrupt at the same time. So I'm just surprised. I I, I don't I don't buy the the narrative that corruption is what holds us yeah. back in the last and 10 that, years. that corruption is what caused the deficit to balloon. No, yeah. that's no. I mean, if you it just the numbers just don't make sense. I mean, 200 million is is a small number actually when you're looking at government spending of 1.5 trillion a year. I just want to ask a question about you talk in your paper about the the design principles of a fiscal stimulus, and that's very important uh, to the discussion we're having before. Um, if I've, I've looked at uh, fiscal stimulus packages in other countries, most of them focus, number one, on the household. Now, if you look at ours, the grants got 50 billion rands out of 500 billion rands. That's 
So um, if you look at the Malaysian stimulus, 17% of GDP, half of it went to households. So the first portion, I would think, would go to households. The second portion, as you said, should go to companies as relief grants like the taxis we're asking for. If you look at the one billion that the taxes have been offered, it's 5,000 rands per taxi. It doesn't make much of a difference. And then the third one was, um, so it's, it's households and it's also employment schemes, employment protection, like the pay, pay, Payroll Protection Act in the UK and the furlough schemes. Is that what you would say? How would you spend this one trillion rand if you were the Minister of Finance? Yeah, I, I would go for all of that stuff. Um, I think, yeah, we, we need to do more for for households. I think the, yeah, as, as I said, the 350 is just way too small. We probably should go for a, a more universal scheme and something that's going to last longer as well. It can't just be a one-off number. The other thing that I think government needs to be thinking about is... Um, I think government should try to concentrate losses in banks. Let me just explain that because it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think we should have had some sort of um, rebate on rent. Just say to everybody, don't pay your rent. Um, and then to landlords, don't pay your don't pay your mortgages. And then government will recapitalize the banks to make to offset that loss. So it's, it's just a way of providing more um, spending into the economy. We could I think government should have been giving tax rebates instead of delaying tax payments to say we don't charge VAT for the next three months or nobody pays company income tax for, for six months just to put money into companies and into, into households. Oh, and I hate to be the person who keeps on bringing us back to negative kind of realities, but you've set out quite uh, innovative ways in which we can move ourselves out of the current crisis with a view to the future impact um, on, what, on the current crisis, what it might have. Um, we're also in this room quite united about the fact that the current steps are not sufficient and are not going down that road. One of the things I asked at the beginning was, and Duma asked, what would it take for us to adopt the correct strategies? Um, I think just as we sort of start drawing this conversation together, to you, what are the big, what are the red flags that we should be looking out for? What What are the indicators that we are going to be in serious problems? Um, and secondly, I think as a, a social activist to ask, what are the steps and the calls that people outside of government should be issuing in order to encourage people to be bolder and to take um, better decisions? Those are great questions. <laughs> um, so I think you know, we're going to monitor the normal economic uh, statistics that are produced. So that's you know, manufacturing production, mining production. The big one we need is GDP, but I think we're only going to get that in about September which is going to be, you know, once once we get that number, which is going to be awful, we're going to be like, okay, well, we knew that already. Um, so I think I think that if if anything is going to turn government, it will be social pressure. And it, I think, I don't know, I feel like people should be out in the streets, you know. If people are starving and, um, you know, we made a massive mistake by closing the school feeding schemes, you know, that's 9 million meals a day. People should be out in the streets saying, you know, we need, that's like that's one very easy step. Just just reopen school feeding, if, even if you can't reopen the schools. Um, but but I think there has to be more pressure on government uh, to see actually what's you know that there's massive impact. There's a negative impact as poor people are suffering. But I think if I want to, I don't want to end on a negative note. But I think what we've heard from the minister of finance is actually moving in completely the wrong direction. He's talking about saying that we have to reduce expenditure dramatically because we're going to be in a fiscal crisis in four years. 
And that's completely the wrong message that, that he should be sending. And we hear from the Minister of Social Development that she wasn't aware that COVID would have a, such a bad impact on poverty. That's not even recognising the underlying structural issues. So social mobilisation really seems to be uh, what people need to be embracing. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, I think government will respond to pressure. But uh, at the moment, government clearly doesn't feel that pressure to respond. Thank you so much, Owen. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. And this has been a stimulating, if slightly sobering conversation. But uh, hopefully in a couple of months' time, we will see that the Reserve Bank has listened to us, has heeded us, and that with social mobilization, we've been able to rewire. Thank you very much. Thank you Thanks so for much. having me. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.